0: You're listening to Podcasting Paradigms with David Truss and my guest, Josh Abrams. In late January 2017, I traveled with Mike Slinger and Evan Sharp to Boston to visit with Alan November and then Josh Abrams of Meridian Academy before going to Educon in Philadelphia the following day. Alan November hosted us for lunch, and we had a wonderful conversation. Only after we left Alan did I realize that it would have been a great chat to have recorded. Mike, Evan, and I did a quick podcast in the car to try to capture some of the key ideas we discussed. But alas, after listening to it again, the Google Maps audio directions that continually interrupted us were more coherent than our ramblings. After lunch, we headed to meet Josh Abrams at Meridian Academy, And early on in the conversation, I realized that this was worth recording. After the recording, we went on a tour of the school, and in speaking to a couple different teachers and seeing some of the student projects on display, we could really tell that the school has created a rich learning environment that lives up to the description and expectations that Josh shared with us. The show notes share a few full quotes from the transcript because they're worth sharing and writing about. You can find them at podcasts.davidtrust.com, and as always, I appreciate you sharing this podcast, liking on iTunes, and commenting, but I also encourage you to share a few quotes from Josh, including his Big Three Changes for All Schools, with your colleagues to encourage a rich learning conversation, and now I give you Josh Abrams.
1: Second in two months.
0: Yeah, so, okay, so you're Josh Abrams, uh, this yeah. is uh, Meridian Academy, and you're just about to tell us about right. sort of the principles you started school for.
1: right. So, so certainly a commitment to uh, social justice and being an urban school, um, uh, an economically diverse school, wanting the freedom of an independent school, but more of a mixed population than, than what that typically looks like around here which is sort of a race to the most fancy campus and gorgeous buildings. That, I mean, some of the schools around here are so much fancier than most colleges that you just, like, it makes you astounded, right? Um, so we, we are more humble in our in our sense of the importance of stuff. Um, I think some stuff is really useful. And as a teacher who teaches an engineering class, I want all the best toys. I want 3D printers. I, I want tons of Lego robotics, I want those things. Um, I don't need fancy handrails, I don't need beautiful signage, I don't need the stuff that actually doesn't affect learning and that only serves, for the most part, in some of these schools to make parents feel really special. If my child is going to a place that looks this gorgeous, we must be wonderful people, right? I don't need any of that nonsense. Um, So a home base is what we needed. You know, you feel like you have riches in your community as an educator, that's what I feel like in Boston, we have access to the most amazing resources, if we can get to them, right? So how do you make it so that when your teacher says, you know, we'd like to go research, the Copley Library is our country's oldest library. It's a beautiful building downtown, just stunning. was the first public library in the US. And uh, if you call ahead and say, we'd like four hours to work with a librarian, Um, and get help with American history research our kids are doing. They'll say, okay, we've blocked that off. You do not pay a penny for the library or the librarian, right? So we don't need to build that. We need to just have the flexibility. So when my teacher says, I want four hours next Thursday, we can do that, right? So I'll show you. We actually publish a different schedule every week. There's a master schedule, and each week's schedule looks familiar, Mm -hmm. but it gets tweaked the heck out of it. I mean, last year, the master schedule didn't survive unscathed once in 40 weeks, right? I mean, there's every weekend I'm publishing a new version. Um, How can you do that? By not even being 250 kids. If you try and do that for 250 kids, you will kill yourself. It's not worth it, right? But if you're around 100 kids or less, you can actually have that flexibility. If you have that flexibility, then you can go to the MFA when your kids are studying Greek history. They go to the room at the MFA, and they study Greek artifacts. And we have all these wonderful activities. Just involved in looking at, talking about, hypothesizing about these things from Greek times. Uh, so we have lots of museums we use in ways that are really integrated into core course content. Um, we, you know, we talk about field trips, but like parents will email me and say, I oh, have this great idea, there's this amazing whatever exhibit, blah-blah. And it may be amazing. But this is not a school devoted to field trips that are cool. The field trip has to have a connection to the ongoing, coherent courses that our kids are taking. Um, but having that flexibility, being small, and being able to use the city, means we don't have to be house poor. right? Mm-hmm. We just need the home base. We need to get the things we need here. Um, we do field research. Our eighth graders take an integrated math science course uh, called marine science. And they build these things called a sea perch, actually. There's one in the cabinet behind you. Uh, you should always have a sea perch in a sea perch. This is a sea perch. It's designed at MIT. It is an ungodly looking thing. Um, but when you put it in the water, it's, if you've done your ballast, because they study physics, they study electronics, um, and they study buoyancy and pressure. And if you do it right and you put it in the water, it sinks to about this level. Just the top of your floats are, are showing up, right? And then it's on a 50 foot tether. There's a circuit board here. Kids learn how to solder and all those good things. And that's up, that's down, that's left, that's right, that's hard left, hard right, forward, backwards. Like with those three motors, this is an underwater research vessel. So we spend weeks going to the Charles and the kids ask questions about the Charles. What's the particulate matter? What's the depth? Depth is a really cool one because I've seen at least a dozen different ways to use this thing to measure depth. Um, But in and of itself, it's just a cool boat, right? it's a submarine, Mm -hmm. Um, and it is, despite its appearance, a very nimble swimmer, like I've seen this in a water tank at MIT, it's really incredibly good at swimming around, um, uh, despite its kind of goofy look. Um, So the kids have to then figure out, what am I going to do with it, what question do I want to answer, and then how do I outfit this to answer that question. They do real field research and real field research, like anything useful, involves failure. So when my older son, sorry, I'll close the door. Crowds are coming.
2: We all looked at each other when you said that it requires failure because that's been a big part of our conversation. If,
0: if case, case, I mean, it's my presentation um, then. We make in
1: in traditional schools. They are designed to make kids risk averse, mm-hmm. right? And that's a crappy goal, Um, right? I mean, as an adult, that just means staying under the covers. I don't know what it... I mean, failure is the the mode, right? As a parent, like, if you think every time you bomb you've you've damaged your child for life or anything, you're in trouble. And as a teacher, God knows if you think you're going to get it right every time. Um, I
0: think one of the biggest injustices we do in education is the solid A student that's gone all the way through school and never had to... um, be challenged, adverse enough to feel failure. Right.
1: And to realize it's not a problem. No. So when I teach engineering to sixth and seventh graders, they realize you can't actually make a robot where the hardware, the software, and the interaction between them works the first time. Like that does not happen ever, right? So failure is simply a process. It's just not a problem. And our kids become revision monsters. Like they just understand that whatever they do, if they don't ever hand you a paper and think they're done, not one of these kids thinks that that's the end of the story. They assume they're going to get feedback from each other, mm-hmm. from the teacher, and that, and that there'll be more. You know, It's only when they get to college, I had a student came back and she said, well, I got feedback from the teacher, and she said, and I did very well, she was an unbelievable student, I'm sure she got an A. She said, but it had feedback. So I said to him, great, I'll get you a new version tomorrow. And he just looked at me and said, no. You know, and I said, "Yeah, no, they only give you one shot, and it's not about the grade for you, but it is for them. They give you the grade and they move on." Um, so, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good story. It's just good. No, that was his entire <laughs> response. It was like, "Here, you have this incredibly eager, brilliant learner." Um, so, um, so with this, like when my now senior son was an eighth grader, I, we were driving home, and I said, "How was your day?" And Isaac's always like, "Oh, it's great. Dash is great," and and. Uh, and I picked him up. I said, "How's your day?" And he goes, "Not good at all." I said, "What was the matter?" He said, "Well, we took our sea perches out to the Charles to test them, and mine like the motors wouldn't work. Nothing was right. And nothing went right. And so things short circuited. He probably hadn't soldered something well or whatever. Um, whatever. At dinner, he's borching about this, and my wife's looking very sympathetic. And she says to me, kind of gently, that evening, "You know, dear, maybe maybe you guys should ditch that whole sea perch." Thing you know, it doesn't sound very effective. I said, no, no, it's okay, it's good. Um, and we have ex- we don't have final exams because we think it is inherently disrespectful to say to a kid that after studying some topic for three months, that the most interesting thing you can do is sit down, shut up, close your book, and do something quickly. Right? That's not what you're built towards. So we have exhibition evening three times a year, and I don't actually personally know. I know lots of schools that do exhibitions. I don't know any that do it every three months and when we tell kids that here they go what do you mean how could you do it once a year we would never be able to share all of the work we do in one night you know from a year like that's Mm. insane Uh, we barely touch the surface each time three months so there they share their art their science research their research papers their Spanish skits whatever they've been doing all the meatier longer term projects with the public. And so parents and neighbors and supporters of the school and applying families will come in and educators um, will come in and they'll, the kids' job is to teach, right? So it's like a science fair, but for everything. Um, and so the kids are in the rooms and they rotate from topic to topic during the evening and there are crowds coming to learn from them. And so
2: the kids have all of their materials in
1: one room? No, so they'll have like their, their Mist, we have MIST, which is our version of STEM. Um, so they'll have their MIST projects in one room and their humanities projects in another and, and they have like a four-unit ro- four rotation kind of And, and MIST evening. stands for? Math, Science, and Technology. Um, uh, so we have MIST, Humanities, and mostly Spanish. Every kid has to do Spanish as a graduation requirement and they do community service locally um, in Spanish by their second year, which means, again, they know they're going to be using their learning Essentially, immediately, it's not for some like distant removed. And this is what life. we're running
2: into with in our French program and our school right now: is how do we make it authentic? I mean, it's just that is just sort of an aside issue that we're trying to deal with. I like your ideas, but I I would love you to go into a little bit more of how you develop the mist and the humanities because that's something I know that Evan and I've spent a lot of time chatting with, and it's something that I'm trying to I would. I consider our school a bit of a sandbox yeah. we're young, yeah. you know, we can play in the sandbox, and so if we don't like what we're doing, we're still at a spot where we can smooth right. and, out the and sand and I and hope start we're again. always like
1: that, right? I mean, yeah. I don't want to become so wedded to something. There were things when I started the school I was sure I'd be doing curricularly that I have had to let go of because I discovered other things that were even better, mm-hmm. right? right? You know, I had all of a sudden this freedom. I have degrees in math and biology, and it drove me crazy, sort of like the English comment, right? Um, I was doing a unit when I had to teach about parabolas at a school, and I was doing a unit on Galileo and gravity and parabolas. And a girl raised her hand and said, "Mr. Abrams, why are we doing science and math class?" And you know, because again, they've just been taught to put blinders on, right? Just keep it safe. That's how you keep it safe: is you don't make connections. Connection making is hard. Um, so, uh, so just keep it in this little tiny box. And I said, "Well, it's funny, you know, but..." But historically, math and science evolved together. They still evolve together all the time. They're, they're related, right? Um, and so we're missing a lot of the beauty and power of what we study if we keep science in the science class and math in the math class and English in the English class. Um, and you know, Meridian kids are the exact opposite. They're connection makers because they spend years with a. I mean, I could do that activity in that school. But what you will see, and I always imagined this at schools, is that most of my students had this kind of weird filter, and they'd like put it up, and only the stuff that made sense in the bigger context of the messages of the school would sneak through. So I could say all sorts of stuff, and there'd be a few kids who literally would write me notes saying, I feel like you spoke to some piece of me that has never been spoken to before, namely an intellectual... Curious piece, right? Um, but most kids just kind of let the weird stuff about like thinking and connection making go by, and they just let the more traditional part come through, and, and they'd be unscathed by my rantings. Unscathed. Um, so, it's true, though, right? I mean, it was certainly possible to do that. Yeah. If I, but when every adult is giving the same message, it's a whole other game, right? And it's not only the message; it's that the whole. Design of the school has to support that message. Mm -hmm. We don't have letter or number grades. Mm -hmm. We are a high school that is credit, no credit. And you have to really kill yourself to get no credit. You have to not do the work. And then when the teacher gives you feedback, that it's not at standards yet to not do it again. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, we're much we, we don't want to build on crappy foundations. We don't want juniors who don't know the ninth grade material. So what do we do? We work towards mastery, and that means redoing until you really have the understanding you need. Does that then decay in some kids' brains more than others? Of course it does. Um, but if they know the goal is understanding for use now and in the near-term future. Um, then they buy in a lot more. And when someone asks a question, the kids don't think that they're causing trouble. The teachers don't think they're causing trouble. They think that's what you do. You, you ask questions that the teachers may not even know the answer to. Right? Because of relevance. Yeah, because and because, you know what? Learning is actually fun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it doesn't need an extrinsic reward, reward. right? I don't need to be... I haven't gotten a grade. I know about you guys. I haven't gotten a grade in a very long time. And it has not stopped me from doing anything right? Um, and so, so that's what we try and cultivate. So the whole structure of the school is that the learning is at the heart of things. And that means longer classes. It means no bells. It means a flexible schedule that meets the needs of the learners, not the needs of the bureaucracy. Um, I may bitch and moan about having to redo the schedule every week, especially when I've got it done and I've posted it and then someone emails, emails me and says, Josh, We'd like to change Thursday, and I'm like, oh, it's Sunday night, and I'm yeah. posting a new schedule. But I never say, sorry. it's so what would that change
2: you mean you want to go down to the museum? Well, we just
1: what? found out a, a movie that's perfect for what we're studying is coming out. Or there's a play, and there's a school performance, and we just learned about it, or... Or, you know, we were going to do this, but, but the weather looks crappy on Wednesday, we'd like to move the trip to Thursday. you know It's like yeah. we have that flexibility.
0: We, we uh, do that as well. It's interesting. One of our teachers actually runs um, just a, a document in uh, Google Dropbox right. and then that's our schedule. and it, it, it hmm. changes weekly. Right. I think the piece that um, that you're doing that we just in year five haven't gotten to yet is we know there's amazing we have two well, one outstanding um, university, uh, right campus that's literally, I think, two bus rides away um, and just so, so easy to get to. And we don't really reach out and do things in the community. And so I'm wondering, you know, in your early years, how do you make those connections to... I mean, not all of them are like intense partnerships. It's just these places are there. And one thing I
1: found in the early years when we do field trips and things is we'd call them up and every person I called, the first question was, how long can you stay? And I was confused. I didn't understand why they kept yeah. asking me this. Like Everyone was like, they were all like, didn't matter. And it's because people would call them up and they'd say, okay, well, we can't get the kids on the bus until 9.15. It's going to take us 45 minutes there. We have to get them back for their afternoon classes. What can you do in an hour and a quarter? Right? And my answer to them was always, what you got for me, here's what we're looking at, we'd like to do this, that, and the other thing. Like we'll call Biogen, which is this great biotech company, and we'll say, well, you have certain labs, is there a way to make that lab even richer? Because they tend to dumb these things down. Like, so there's one lab you can do, which is a gel electrophoresis lab. But the first half of the lab that most schools don't stay around for or get to, which they prepare in advance otherwise, is making the gel. Making the gel turns out to be really fun and really interesting, and you get to use really nice tools that are standard lab tools, like you get proficiency with micropipettes and understanding all these measurements. And so making the gel and then running the electrophoresis is really neat. It's an all-day trip. Woo-ha! Let's go for that, right? So when they discover that you are not running out the door on them, oh, then they roll out the red carpet and they figure out what can we do. Uh, And we we also handle like every parent with a million forms we send them each summer. One of the forms says, "You can take my kid wherever you want, whenever you want." So there's none of that. Oh God, I'm going to do a trip. I've got to get the 40 forms. Right? I mean that's soul sucking. Right? Just let me walk out the door. Now obviously that's not true for an overnight. You know we do have to return them at the end of the day. But during the school day, you know that's just not an issue. And it's so so, you know you want to be nimble. Right. Um, they,
2: we, we have a similar all-encompassing free pass during the day for the most part in our teachers area. And we have some vehicles available to us so like we had a teacher who wanted to do some geology and go up to Brandywine Falls which is like 45 minutes away She's like the day before can I go? And I'm like, oh, yeah let's go. And they they just hopped in the bus, they drove up, they did their 45 minute run around and came back by the end of the day and it was just like
3: wow. I think I just told you that I was taking that senior class down to the Provincial Court of Appeals for like a whole day next month. Like, I booked it and then I let Mike go because I can drive the bus, so i right. the yeah. class. Well, go. we
1: always have the T. It's a few blocks away, yeah, right? Awesome. So we have mass transit. Nice. When We have an eighth grade course that focuses on constitutional history. And a few years ago, we were in another building, the custodian, who we were really lovely, the, the, the people who ran the building were really, brought their custodians, but we were really good. Um, and our kids clean up at the end of the day, and we just had a really nice relationship. And he was actually getting his citizenship swearing-in ceremony, and the teacher heard this. So she scheduled the kids in her class to go witness a swearing-in ceremony, which was really relevant to the class and really interesting and eye-opening. Um... And they learned about what you have to do to become an American citizen, as both of those who were born here ignorant. Uh, uh, and and the custodian was just so moved, like that oh, the yeah. kids had come to see him. It was such a win-win, you know, in terms of just our partnership and 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 what they were learning. It was really a treat. Um, so anyway, you know, so the basic model is be cheap, you know. But don't don't have to skimp on anything. Like I, I honestly don't think there's a high school in the country that has better resources than, than we do, right? Um, and uh, and so we're not cheap. Our school this year was twenty six thousand dollars. Some of the private schools around here are forty six thousand. Our goal is to be about twenty grand less than than the hoity toity places. Um, but we also have a, about. 33, 35% of our budget is financial aid. The typical independent school, it's about 15%. You know. And if you're 46 grand and it's 15%, then that 15% is entirely going to middle class families who are sending two siblings and can't afford 92 grand a year, right, or right. something like that. Um, almost none of it. Maybe you'll have one pretty high scholarship kid in a class. Uh, a fifth of our school is paying like fifteen hundred dollars or less and we have kids paying 50 bucks a year which of course is just so that they feel they're paying something um, it was there I mean parents are supposed to say what can I afford I said 50 they couldn't really afford that but we said sure but that 50 includes books includes trips includes when you're in 10th or 11th grade a, a, a trip abroad to a spanish-speaking country um, if the kid doesn't have the money we give them a wad of cash for the Travel expenses, if you don't have a laptop, we give you a laptop. If you don't have internet at home, we arrange to get you internet at home. Um, we make sure we don't charge for things that some kids can afford and others can't, right? So if we, so like we're, for the ter- first time, kids design sweatshirts. And so my teachers know we don't do anything that every kid can't choose to do. And so they said, should we make sure we buy sweatshirts free for the kids who can't afford them? I said, you know, it's gonna be a little awkward if all of a sudden all the poor kids show up with sweatshirts one day. Just buy them for the whole school, right? Just let's not make this an issue, right? It's too visual. Some of the things we do are behind the scenes; it doesn't matter. Like they don't know whether I'm sending an invoice home to your parents or not for the Model you trip, right? Right. So that, but for this, it's kind of obvious, right? So let's just buy this. Everyone cheered. We're getting free sweatshirts. Hallelujah. Um, uh, same things with yearbooks. Anything, and, you know, I, there are schools here where they say oh, well, we're really generous. We give the kid a budget. We think it's really important to learn how to budget. So if they want to buy the varsity jacket, they can do that. Or if they want to do this trip, they can do that. And I'm thinking, yeah, but their schoolmates at this school don't have to budget anything. That's not what their life is like. And I don't let them learn to budget some other time. Like, I can do, I can't change this world, God knows, but I can make my little one here more equitable. And so we have, like, whatever you pay, that covers everything. So...
0: If you had, if you had something, you've given a lot already. But if there's something that you'd say, okay, every school should be doing this right now, what do you, what would you say?
1: Uh, well, the, I'd say curricularly, they're, are the big three, which is getting rid of grades. Um, they're misleading. You know, you and I could both be B plus students. You could be brilliant but kind of slothful. I could get every point through the sweat of my brow, right? Uh, our parents, and we are not getting useful information, right? Um, a kid could be thrilled with a B plus and stop working. Our kids never get to rest on their laurels, not the A student or the D student. Well, you don't get to be a D student, you have to do better work than that. Um, but like if you had grades, right? I, I just I can tell you for me, one of the most joyous things about the last dozen years of Meridian has not been having to get grades anymore. It changes the trust relationship it changes the nature of the conversation. When a kid has a great idea at one school in the past, this kid had this wonderful question, and I said, that's wonderful. Here's how I would think about it. Why don't you go home, experiment with some of those ideas, come back and report to us tomorrow. His first next question was, how many bonus points do I get?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, I don't know. How many do you want? He said... Well, what are they worth? I said, I have no idea, you're the one who brought them up. I don't think in those terms, you know. Um, I used to play games with the kids. I hate it, you hand back a, uh, uh, I call them quests, not tests. Um, You hand back a quest, and they're just looking at the score and putting their notebook. I said, wait, i spent hours writing comments. (laughs) Could you just get, so what I started doing was was hiding the grades. Like, the first time I'd fold a little staple back, I'd write the number there, I'd fold it back. (laughs) Where are the grades? I don't know. Read the damn comments first, will you please? And then when they're all done reading the comments, say the grade can be found by pulling back the flap on the, cane. yeah. And that, you can only do that once, of course. So then you figure out another way to hide it. Finally, I just started writing math functions that would encode the grade. And they, What does this number mean? I said I'll put the function up when you're done. done reading the notes. You know, read my notes, please. Then I'll say if you want to know your score, please plug it into this function, and you'll, you know, it's like crazy stuff just to, you know. Those games are, are ridiculous. They're just ridiculous. So um, we don't have those. Like if I give I mean, I have a course where I gave one quest the whole year. It's a junior senior level course on math modeling, applied mathematics. Um, you just don't do applied math in 45-minute speed tests, right? There's just but we were doing some probability stuff, and I wanted them to have certain skills, and I wanted them to actually do some memorizing. And what I'll do with kids is I'll say, okay, I want you to take all your notes and our handouts. We don't really have a textbook because my courses don't exist in anyone's textbooks. Um, and uh, I want you to make two pages of notes from that next day. Okay, now I want you to make one page of notes from those. Finally, you may bring in a four by six file card into this quest, right? I basically open book, right? Most kids don't even look at the file card because when you've gone from two pages to one page of file card, you've memorized it. You've thought about what's most important. My Algebra 2 teacher would do that to me. For our final exam, for a year's worth of math, we could do one side of a 3.5 by 5 file card. I would put the entire course on that card, and I'd never look at it. You know? um, and, and so I think you're teaching kids how to study, really, right? And you're also making it a little low stress for the kid who does need to say, What are the prompts? Like, what do I need to, to think about? Um, but if a kid doesn't, if a kid gets that back, they don't get a score from me. It says, here were the three main themes on this test. It was understanding the difference between probability and expected value. It was understanding the binomial probability theorem. And it was about certain explanations and, and tools. To Here's how you did on each three. Uh, you're great on everything, but you need to redo this piece. You're, you know, so basically, they have to redo the parts that aren't there yet. Um, and they know that that's how it works. So you're meeting standards or you're not meeting But there is no overarching, like, here's how you did. So, the, so that's so That's one. two, that's right? One. So that's one, sorry. That's one. The other two are about interdisciplinary learning, mm-hmm. right? Look at anything in this world. It's interdisciplinary, right? I mean, that is just what life is. I'm sorry. That's OK. Um, uh, who was that? Can you pause? No, uh, we had a wonderful, it was wonderful. When I was at Mass Academy years ago, our, the, the head of Massachusetts' Senate came, and he was the first speaker I've ever seen at a, at a graduation um, who actually thought about the group he was talking to. It was a math and science school, and, he's, and so he said, I'm going to talk about why math and science is important to being a citizen and being a legislator. He said, let me tell you some of the legislation we have to deal with. What kind of animal is a reasonable pet? I said, that's a science question, and it's an ethics question, and it's, right? I mean, it's a wonderful question thinking, like, yeah, wh- why do we make certain ones legal and not? What's the, you know, uh, what do we know about animal behavior? What do we know about their, their, their needs? Um, uh, at the time, before cars didn't even need toll anymore, they were just putting in fast lane kind of technology. He said, "We have to weigh different models. Like we have to decide between the technology that does this and the technology that does that, and we have to understand the costs and the benefits and the and the and the error rates and you know, real problems are crazy multidisciplinary and um, and so we should be teaching that. It's lost opportunities. I had a colleague once who's a chemistry teacher, and I said, and I knew that the math and the science sequencing had no coherence." No cross connections, right? And I said to him, you know, it's funny. Most of your students haven't learned logarithms yet um, because the math department teaches them later. What do you do when you're teaching acids and bases? And he said, oh, I just tell them it's a button on the calculator.
0: (laughs) It's not his
1: fault, right? He has this much content that's been stuffed into the year to cover, right? So he does not have time to take two weeks off and teach his kids logarithms, Mm -hmm. right? It's not his fault. But it's a horrible thing to treat logarithms like a black box. So like, it's the
0: biggest injustice in our school system is the silo. Yeah. yeah. So it's
1: just, I mean it's just crazy. So it's so it's, lo- it's bad learning and it's missed opportunities and kids, and then you get to the point where years ago in a geometry final exam I was giving it a, when I was still doing such things, a girl called me over and she pointed to a problem. She said, Is this a chapter four, section two problem? <laughs> and, I was stunned, you know, but it's not, again, not their fault, just Mm -hmm. not, Um, and I said to her, you know, it's funny, I know we use this book, and I know I've taught from this book, but I cannot tell you what's in chapter four, section two, so here's my suggestion, whatever is there, you obviously know, try it, if it doesn't work, pick another chapter, another section, see if that (laughs) works, because I said, that's how I do it, I try one thing, if it doesn't work, I try the next, and I keep going through it. And I'm trying to diagnose but obviously you think it's related to that so that's a good diagnostic start go for it but you want a silo I mean that's the most artificial silo so she wasn't comfortable until she the prompt the kids need is this is a problem of this type right but the weird thing is life doesn't come labeled that way right kids walk in the door every day and I wish they had a big sign saying Actually, what I need right now is therapy or what I need right now is a pat on the back or I really would like a really hard science question, please, or can I read this work of literature? Right? They're not labeled either. They walk in the door and we have to figure out what their needs are and how to do that. And, and kids, if I go into like a constitutional law test, well, I'm pretty damn sure that every question is going to draw on what I've just been learning. Right. But what we give them when we do an applied math class or a pure math research class is we give them problems. We give them settings. We let them ask their own questions and their own problems. And then they have to think, oh, of all the things I've learned, what's relevant to this? Right? And that's what interdisciplinary learning done right does. Is It's not just about problem solving. You see lots of schools talk about problem solving who aren't really even doing it well. I don't know how you do it well without problem posing. right? And, and, and they don't. Because a the textbook cannot address that right, no textbook can figure out how to answer your question if you've asked a question, right? That's why teachers still matter. Uh, that's why you can't idiot-proof textbooks, right? Because kids' questions matter. And 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 I had a during an admissions meeting uh, uh, last year. Some father said to me after my impassioned talk, he said, uh, "You know." all the schools I visited just sound great. He visited some pretty different beasts. And he said, how am I supposed to decide? So I said, well, schools have have statements about their goals and their missions. I said, for example, every school I've ever been at at, says that they develop lifelong learners. He goes, yes, they do. I said, right. Well, what's the alternative, saying you don't develop (laughs) lifelong learners? I said, go and ask each of them how they do it. I said, I've actually just told you how we do it. One way is we don't have grades, because that's not about lifelong learning. We honor kids' questions with time and energy, because that's lifelong learning. And here's how we honor it. Go ask those other schools. What most of them, if they dug deep enough, would say, our teachers are so passionate and smart and learners themselves that it will rub off on the kids. If they're honest, that's the best they can say, because the structures of the institution simply do everything they can to thwart lifelong learning. Right. Uh, uh, I was a biology major in college. No one ever told me or required me to take a statistics course, Mm. right? And I don't know what it's like in Canada, but I've checked a lot of course catalogs in the U.S., and I haven't yet seen a biology major or a science major that requires a statistics course. How shallow can the learning be, right? I mean, so, so my job wasn't to become a scientist. My job was to consume the science information my brilliant professors had learned And then, if I chose to go to grad school, get to finally be a scientist. Well, most people never go to grad school. And most people certainly don't get to go to grad school in history, and anthropology, and biology, and mathematics. So I want my middle schoolers, and I want elementary school students if I had my hands on them, um, but I know my limits. to to um, be junior mathematicians, and junior scientists, and junior historians, and authors, and artists, and everything else. Uh, I must bring them into the domain now, because I'm not going to get that chance to send them to all those different grad programs. And their undergraduate programs or not. So when colleges visit us, they say, wow, your kids are doing work. Like I was describing to a prospective parent here the other day. Um, uh, when we start teaching uh, inferential and descriptive statistics in ninth and 10th grade in this course, and then the kids um, read this wonderful book called Predictably Irrational by Daniel Ariely, which is a really recommended, super accessible, wonderful book. It's, he's a behavioral economist, which means he's a psychologist, and it's all about how we make decisions in ways that are just not smart. Uh, and, but it's, really, it's, it's like Freakonomics only without all of the self-congratulatory nonsense. It's much more honed in. It's really great. The kids love it. It's like an owner's manual to your brain. Oh, we're seduced by that and that and that and it, none of that's logical. And the experiments are super easy to understand and he really explains them well. So the kids then have to develop their own psychology or biology experiments with t-tests or chi-squared tests, with data checking. Um, So they are real scientists. They're not just saying, well, here's my bar chart. and This is higher, so it must have been more. Um, So they become skeptical, inquiring learners. right? One of my kids two years ago was tired of me telling them that they should stop listening to music when they learn because it's not helpful. Mind you, I listen to music all the time when I do certain things. Um, But I said, study after study shows that it reduces your, your progress. So he developed a thing that had with music and without music. His control and his experimental group, and he'd flash a, a bunch of numbers on the screen and give people 30 seconds to learn as many of the numbers. He'd take it off. It was really—I mean, I had another kid do a project like this. It was wildly complicated. This one was beautifully simple. Flash the numbers, turn it off. Please write down all the numbers you can remember. Statistically significant and 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 numerically significant results that. Um, both the people who were listening to music and the people who were not listening to music answered the exact same number of numbers. They wrote down about nine each on average. But the ones who had been listening to music got two to three more wrong on average. So it was a double whammy of a result. It didn't just show, oh, you remember more and you get more right. It shows that you think you're doing just as well when you're, I mean, that was like eye opening to me. It was a beautiful result. And so like, you know, when adults talk to kids, it's like Charlie Brown, it's like wah, 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 yeah. right? But when you can say, I'm tired of Josh saying this, I'm going to find out for myself, that is empowering learning, right? That is like, I am a scientist. I now understand and I'm, I may still decide to listen to music because um, it makes the time fly, but he knows for a fact. <laughs> That it also makes you think you've done more than you've done, right? Um, Really powerful stuff. I was describing this to this parent. I didn't know what she did for a living, but she said, man, I wish my grad students knew how to do that stuff, you know? (laughs) And it turns out she was a professor in in science. Can can we jump in? Please. We've got this
3: burning question, Um, and it's about your number one. So what does... What does assessment look like? Really yeah. yeah. It's got to get, you have to get
1: that a lot. Yeah. And by the way, just number three is all about projects. All right, let me just oh, quickly sorry, wrap it up. Yeah. No, just, so yeah, no, you should always cut me off. I just rave. Uh, uh, so we're interested in, we're project-based. I talked about exhibition evening, right? The kids are always working in coherent courses. You'll never see a course called Algebra Two. Or you know, intro to this—that those are all nonsense, non-existent fields. There's no algebra twoist out there, right? So there should be no course called algebra two. Um, uh, so they're always doing long-term projects, working towards, and they're skill-building. But some of the best ways to develop skills is to use them in the service of something more interesting than just themselves, right? Um, our juniors. Hey, Tati. Uh, our juniors take us extra seminar on top of their three daily courses, the Hum, the Mist, and the World Language. Um, they take junior research project seminar and they pose a question and they work on it for an entire year. Um, and they produce two things. They produce at least a 25-page literature review, so a big, serious research paper um, that's involved uh, technical literature, interviews. There are lots of different types of sources they have to get. Uh, and then they do something with it. Um, behind you is one of the something with it's. This was a kid last year who studied uh, the history of Art Deco and wrote a wonderful paper on the origins of Art Deco and the different forms it took and the philosophy of the people doing that kind of art. And one of the things he noticed was that travel posters were a big theme in Art Deco creations. And so he decided for his project that he was going to learn how to use Illustrator And he was going to produce travel posters. And these are for the three cities, Dubai, Boston, and Sydney. And for each one, there's a pairing. There's what he called a monumental poster, which was just like Zaycom Bridge or Sydney Opera House. And then there was a cityscape uh, from the city. So he had that pairing of each. And then there are artist statements below each one. So this is what he did. Lifelong learning. This summer, he just kept making that. He didn't stop. His year-long project was over, and he just kept going. I did a math project for the kid who learned group theory, which is kind of a mid-level undergraduate math course uh, topic, and applied it to Peg Solitaire and Rubik's Cubes and some other shapes he had designed. Um, was reading real science, read, you know, math research papers, and learning that you don't read them 30 pages an hour. You read them like two pages an hour with pencil in hand. Um, this summer, he's still reading. He's saying, I did some more modern algebra over the summer, Josh. Right? If you're excited, if you've developed expertise, why stop? Right? Another kid looked at the genetics. of. She wanted to study a parasite and its host. It's and she looked at DNA. Uh, sequencing in schistosomiasis and, and, and its host DNA, which I think were humans. And this is just an information graphic she produced for. That's a, pro- a student project? That's a student project. So it's on the, the that wall that and it student. Had,
3: had student project written all over it. I was like, that looks <laughs> phenomenal. All
1: right. Well, so this is what happens when you give kids time, mentoring, the skills in advance, right? Um, and the belief and support, right? Um, I, I did a science fair judging a school, and they told the kids, go home and do a science fair. Please have it ready by January. Right? There was no school time. They couldn't devote school time to it. Now, some projects were still great, right? but some were like, man, you could've used some feedback here. Um, so anyway, that's what we're aiming for. My older son, who is now a professional in New York in uh, video projection and design, he went to Boston University in their school of theater. Um, his junior project was, he was very involved in lighting at the time. he found all these books for actors, but nothing for people on the technical side of theater. So his research paper was on what makes good curriculum. And he interviewed professors and curriculum developers in this area, of which there are many, and, and wrote a wonderful research paper on that. And then he wrote a book. I can show it to you. It was a color book for kids on advanced lighting techniques for theater. And it was had it had problem sets. It's like this, and it's like a hundred some odd page, vanity press published thing. Um, and it's crazy. And so I always just say, look, if you give kids the expectation, if you show them, here's the other thing: kids see this, they go, "Ooh, wow!" Like my students get mad at me when I don't give them an exemplar for a project, right? I say, "Well, you're the first ones doing this particular project." Sorry, buddies, but when you do, every time. You just get better work. I think this is the exemplar for my career, and then next I go, wow, man, that puts the old exemplar to shame. You know, someone came up with it, and I will save that, right? You
2: yeah, and This is something that we're stumbling into right now, so we've done what we call our, our incubator, which is INQ for inquiry. So every student in the school is asking a question, and they're working two, two periods a week on this incubator project right. that they're going to try and search out the answers. One of the things I know we're talking about is how do we, how do we grow that? How does that, we were tossing around some ideas yesterday on the plane coming in, before coming here trying to figure out like how do you do these interdisciplinary, how do you find that free time? And we think we just do the morning every day of curriculum the
1: afternoon is a bit more free flowing? Right? Yeah, look, I think people can be more ambitious than we are in a lot of ways. I mean, we say in our mission statement we're a blend of progressive and traditional education. Um, But, man, there's some things I wish we did more. I wish we did more out in the neighborhood. I wish we did more service learning. Um, You know, uh, but there are pulls, right? There are things you know. I mean, we're not a school that just says come in and do what excites you, right? I mean, I actually believe... That some of the coolest learning is the stuff that kids think they don't like. And then they discover when it's taught well, how rich and interesting, hard things that scared them are, right? I actually believe in compulsory, (laughs) you know, spreading of your wings. Um, Do you do the chem and physics? I mean, that you best in math and biology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, that's because that's me, right? Um, I I teach a little physics. But so... Our seven-year sequence, you can see it online, uh, we have uh, an engineering class I teach that's physics, and algebra, and arithmetic, and lots of geometry because we do CAD-CAM stuff. Um, We have a course called Dreamist, doing research in math and science, which does plant stuff and field research with trees. And they learn triangle trig to measure the heights of their trees. Um, And they learn some ecology. and, And they learn some algebra in that class. That's sixth and seventh grade. Eighth grade is the marine science class. Again, lots more algebra. Um, and experimental design. Ninth and tenth, there are our two most traditional math and science classes. There's one that really just isn't there yet, and it's actually gotten worse as an interdisciplinary course. It's just a chemistry class and a geometry class. Um, and, and there are reasons for that. You know, it's sort of, but it's not. I mean, they're still fine, but they're not, they're less connected interdisciplinary than they used to be for a whole host of tugs. On our, on our approach to things, and those are classes that are tag-team taught, rather than team-taught, or individually taught. Um, I can teach engineering on my, lo- my own. I'd say there are three of us who can teach the Dreamist course on our own. We have a teacher who teaches the Calc and Physics class on her own, and I could pull it off a little more physics practice over the summer and more research into good labs. Um, I teach the Applied Math class um, on my own to juniors and seniors then the human biology and decision-making class is sort of like statistics and trigonometry and functions and transformations and biology, focused on human biology and neurobiology um, and, uh, and that, that research project I mentioned, the psychology experiment. So um, that's sort of that's a really cool course too because I think the math and the science do come together in waves. Um, but, uh, but so that's sort of the sequence. So yeah, you get chemistry sort of in a freestanding year. You get biology in at least four years. You get physics... In the engineering class, you got it in the, this stuff, you got it in the senior junior class, so we tease it apart.
3: And how much of that, because when reading the descriptions when I was researching the school and I'm reading the, the division descriptions and kind of trying to read between the lines on in the interdisciplinary piece, um, how much of that is really mapped out to make sure you're covering bases, not to even suggest that, that they wouldn't be, because we, we know probably Intuitively, that by the end of such a program, they've seen it all. But d- do you have assurance? We like to joke that there's no curriculum police. Nobody's going to come and make sure that you're covering bases, right. but to do right by the students.
1: Right. So, you know, whenever people sit down, and I know we haven't gotten back to question one yet, whenever people <laughs> sit down, <laughs> Sorry, we'll get there, um, and map out curriculum, right? It becomes hello. Hi. going to meet. Yep, what's up? Do Dennis. you know if Sarah's around? I do not. Um, it always becomes this crazy grab bag, right? You know, when I was first planning Meridian, you know, we, we have the ACT or the SAT, right? And then we have the AC, SAT subject test. And I was looking because standardized tests were concerning me. Um, and all of our kids take the ACT, because it includes science, uh, and therefore in most schools you don't have to take any other tests. And we don't do any AP tests or any of those things. Um, and colleges love our kids and take our kids. We've just done an end run around most of the testocracy and most of those, those requirements. But I was looking, and under the world history description at the time, I wish I like taken a screenshot or something, it simply said one sentence under content. Students are responsible for all cultures and all time periods. (laughs) And I fell on the floor, guys. Like, I just, I was like, I mean, it was like just, I fell on the floor laughing and crying, and like, some adult wrote that with a straight face. No doubt an adult who knows all cultures and all time periods, right? Now, we know there are privileged ones in the curriculum, right? and that you're supposed to know more about, and that they're not really asking about early Ghanaian history or whatever. You know, it's like, what hogwash, right? Uh, but that's what they wrote. Uh, the AP biology course, you know, AP biology courses, these courses are supposed to satisfy first year college requirements, right? So how do they develop the content? They call up all the colleges. They have meetings and conferences. And everyone says, at our college, we do this. And at our college, we do this. So what do they do? They don't find the intersection of those things. They find the Mm superset. And they say, oh, well, we're not going to make Bob happy if we don't do this. They won't take the test. They won't accept it in lieu. And And so they literally built a course for high school students that was the superset of all college entry biology courses. It became insane. It took them years to recognize how big the books were and that no one could do labs or get through it or anything, right? Um, these courses were so much harder than the college versions by that point. So if you put a committee together, you always get a ridiculous grab bag where every piece of content is, is indistinguishably as important as other thing, right? Um, when I was just starting teaching, the National Council of Teachers of Math produced a document called the NCTM Standards, and one of the things they actually had the courage to do was say, we should do more of this and less of this. Because they knew if they are going to say we should do more of this and they don't say less of this, they weren't really making room for it. So they said we should do more probability statistics, because honestly, that's what citizens and humans need more, perhaps, than even the algebra we're teaching. We should do less of what? Rational expressions with factorable denominators. Because why? They never actually come up in math, science, or anything else, right? So you have to be willing to throw things out the window. Um, and there's some things we actually just teach at the end you know so that the kids will have had some recognition of it um, not that they're not interesting but you can't cram it all our kids all take some calculus before they graduate not a BC calculus level course I've seen I was looking at Canadian requirements because one of my students is applying kind applying of and they were saying you have to have studied vector calculus. And is there really a district in Canada where everyone studies vector calculus? Yeah, this big big thing about vector being, being part of that course. Does every single public school student actually get a reasonable Didn't introduction be of vector to calculus? <laughs> well, you can choose whether you want to. Yeah. There, 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 are streams,
0: there are streams for calculus where if you're taking calculus, you're getting it. If you're taking grade 12 calculus, you do get it.
1: Right. Yeah. But does everyone have that as a graduation requirement? No. But no. it is a university requirement. Some, or, programs. Yeah, some programs. Uh-huh. This is her business major. Really? I thought, wow, can't they learn vector calculus in college? Like so my daughter is applying yeah. to the university
2: program business administration huh. program, so she has to have pre-calc twelve. It's just a service random. Well she this to this, girl, to
1: this girl just this girl had to have vector calculus. They wouldn't they wouldn't take her into the business program. It's like, geez, sorry, I thought we were I don't know of another school except like math and science schools where every kid takes calculus. I mean, our weakest students study calculus. I was like, wow, that was eye-opening. Um, so, um, so yeah, we let go of some stuff, right? But, but we have the time to do it, right? And we do cover stuff, and we do it in depth, and we do it with, I mean, lines. Lines aren't taught once. They're taught in seventh grade, they're taught in eighth grade, they're taught in high school, but in different contexts. Of course, they're taught in calculus, because it's all about making things lines again. Uh, so, so I forget what question I was answering before we got to number one. What were we answering? We were I was asking
3: you about the mapping of curriculum and right. how. Right.
1: So we ha, we map. sometimes things move. Right. We all of a sudden realize we've overstuffed a course, <laughs> and we're going to get rid of it. Um, we all of a sudden discover we're giving the kids more homework than we want. We let go of a of a of a work of literature. Right. I are you doing this with your hands? Did.
3: The divisions are mapped together, though. That's really what I'm getting at when you so, start to build up. So
1: we don't talk to the humanities colleagues about the math science curriculum. We talk to them yeah. about some connections sometimes. Yeah. But within departments, there only are only three departments, right? Mm-hmm. We definitely know what we think is essential learning. And honestly, I think humanities colleagues have it easier. <laughs> you know? um, uh, but they have a long list. Take and, down. <laughs> and, you know, No, no, like, no. I mean... I mean we don't teach a single survey content course in the humanities. We never do America from then to now. So our kids don't know what, who half the presidents are. and they don't, But they know about their, it's a very thematic approach in my, and, and, and it's really humanities. Like they're reading works of literature, they understand the culture that produced it, the kids are producing art about it, they're writing about the art they produce. Um, it's super seamless humanities, right? Which is a very different thing than teaching a history course we're trying way. to get to yeah, yeah that's why um and so and yeah you, we have google docu-
0: will tell them what president what came when at any time what so google will tell them when a president was at any time no fooling
1: yeah. um, but siri won't by the way she never answers <laughs> any of my questions um, so uh she doesn't know how to google apparently um, <laughs> uh, so yeah within each department we we have that but of course okay. these are evolving documents and i am very respectful of the people I hire being brilliant, amazing educators, or people who are going to grow into being that, you know, even if they're young and on their way, um, uh, they have their own passions, right? I would never say to someone, you will teach this book. Do I think a kid should read a work of Shakespeare before they graduate? Sure. I actually think they should read a, a work of Dickens before they graduate, because I love Dickens. Um, but uh, I, don't, I don't inflict that. There's, there, I mean, really, the only thing I've ever said to the humanities department was, you must do Model UN at some point because I love Model UN. We have a Model UN program and one reason we have is because we introduce it to the middle schoolers. So they learn Model UN in sixth and seventh grade or seventh grade and then we have a Model UN team. Monty went is great learning. I have mm-hmm. kids who, for the next six years, are learning about countries and economics and history and public speaking and repu- writing and like it's just great more free learning, uh, you know. So I, I have to leverage that. I love it to pieces. Yeah, ours is booming. We actually teach teaching passionate about it. Our our two. high school students for the last three years have been teaching our middle school thing. They took over for me when in ninth grade. I used to do both. I now do neither. They took over and I. But we have to let go of different things, right? Um, But three of them came up to me, and they said, Josh, um, next year, we'd like to run the middle school Wen program. We think we'll do a better job than you do. Uh, (laughs) And I laughed. I said, I don't doubt it, because you guys have a lot more time than I have. And that's why I was doing a crappy job, because it was like one of a million hats, right? Mm -hmm. So they spent time over the summer planning a curriculum, and every week, they meet for a 45-minute lunch with the wee ones, as I call them. Um, and then they are my co-chaperones for the trip to New York. And so I knew it was the right call when as we were getting off the bus to New York that very first time, before the kid was even off the bus, I saw one of the 10th graders doing this.
0: <laughs> Counting getting. kids on the bus. Oh my god,
1: that is so beautiful. <laughs> Teenagers want to have responsibility. They want to be young adults. They want to be given opportunities. And they watch us. They know how to be a grown-up. And that kid didn't need to be told, do a head count. She was the chaperone. She was a group leader. She was going to make sure we hadn't lost any of the kids getting off the bus. I wanted to, to I mean, it was so moving. Like, it was just like such a great moment. And we got to the hotel. And I'm, pay, I'm checking in. And I hear the next kid say, okay, gather around. Here's when I want you in bed for curfew. Here's what you do before you go to bed to make sure your clothing is laid out for the morning. We're going to be down here at 7.15. For Here's what the materials you're going to need. They'd been doing it for three years, four years. You know, They knew the routine. The only thing I did for three and a half days was pay the bills. And those three tenth graders ran the show. They went to the advisor meeting. at, at this, is, this is the world's biggest middle school model UN. It's 1,600 kids from all over the world. It's a really cool one. And we go to the UN. And they were at the advisors meeting and they were asking all these questions about making the conference more economically accessible to public school kids, about curriculum that people use. Adults were coming up to me and saying, who are these kids and what are (laughs) they doing? But they were so engaged and people were so impressed. They were coming up to them, could you make a video for my high school students so they will do with middle school, you know, like could you Mm -hmm. do a a how-to thing for them? So, you know, a teacher has to have some control of the curriculum in my mind. I know there are countries that have good national curricula, and people teach that curriculum, and that's probably better than the craft fest we have in the U.S. Um, but uh, but I believe a really wonderful teacher should be able to teach things that are not only the core, but that they are just personally incredibly excited to teach about.
0: And, and even when you're doing something truly inquiry based I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with it having a teacher direction with the sort, you know, it doesn't have to be a completely student-driven no. idea. Yeah. No, and, and it's you, not. We have all flavors. What did you call this thing? Seabridge. Seabird. yeah. So I mean, you're, you're building them, and but you're allowing the students to try to figure out what, what to do, do with them. them. Right. And so there's still an incredible amount of teach, of student freedom, but you're giving them the tools and the direction and the guidance that right. you know you're heading them in a positive direction.
1: But you think about like what I don't know is what skills are they going to use. And They'll use data analysis, yes. but like they're doing depth, right? Some kids basically use the cable itself to help measure depth. They know it's going off at an angle, but they also can—they'll like put little rings on the tape so they can see how long, how much of the tape is submerged. So then they try and do trig with it, right? Other kids try and do like rate times time equals distance things. They'll look at it (laughs) in in shallow areas where they can watch it, and they'll time its rate of descent, and they'll try and average that out and then extrapolate. Um, you know, a million different things. I've seen kids with like buoyant things spooling out, so it's more of an engineering problem. Um, so my goal is that they realize that they don't know, and, and they don't know it's chapter four, section two, right? Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, we write stuff up. Obviously, you know, if I was in a public school district that said everything you do has to be in a perfect outline, but we have outlines. We have we always have to we require the teachers to post homework, so the homework becomes for me the um, pacing guide like i can look back at my when i taught the course last when i was taught the course last and see what did we leave in what did we leave out and when did we get to that right and so i love i think i use them more than most people i love the homework documents as a way to like look at the, the ebb and flow because i'm not someone who says by next thursday i will be here if you ask me where i'm going to be next thursday i'll tell you i don't know and why don't i know because you might ask a really good question Right? Yeah. And I've been in schools where parents are constantly hocking me, could we have a syllabus for the kids? Could we have a script? And I, said, and I said, here's the thing, if I give a syllabus, then that sends a really important message to a kid that their questions do not matter. Because I'm not going to be able to diverge from that enough to meet my target. And I've printed it, right? And they said, but it's good practice for college. I said, no, it's not. You haven't been in college in a while. No one hands out a printed syllabus at the start of the year. It's online and they can tweak it if they want to, but it's not like they need the piece of paper up front. I said, I, I, can, I can change content based on what my kids say, and I will. Like I don't post homework before my class. It would be nice to have it all posted, but every time I do, it's kind of like trying to post my schedule too early. Some bastard changes it on me, right? You know, It's like, it's just, oh, okay, you got the field trip. Oh, you asked that great question. And we didn't end up getting to the rest of my lesson. To me, that's a win-win. Not only do we spend time on a really cool question, but I have some leftover lesson plan for the next class, right? <laughs> so it's like this a double, double win. But I then have to sit down and change my homework plans. So are you assigning homework at the end of the day? or is it- Before, yeah. The students at an all-school <laughs> all- meeting years ago passed a rule that we have to post by 430 because some teachers like posting homework at 6.30 or 7, which is like not really helpful. <laughs> it's not fair. So they posted a rule. They're, we're allowed to post uh, by 6 or 6.30 on Fridays because they were making it like 4.30 across the board, and then some kid raised their hand and said, let's be honest, guys. None of us sit down Friday afternoon and start our homework. Let's give, give the, teachers the poor morning. teachers a chance. It was hysterical. <laughs> it was such a great moment. So that was voted in as an amendment, and, and, and that's our rule. I'm the one who makes it be online. And, and there have been a few times over the years where, where some folks tried a little rebellion on that front because they weren't tech comfy. But it's huge for parents who have kids with executive functioning challenges to be able to look at the page and say, Joey, did, did you do this? Can you just show it to me? Is it in your backpack? <laughs> you know, just let them know. Um, and about how much homework do they get? Too much. Um, and they <laughs> tell it. Uh, you know, they never come, not once in 12 years, as a kid told me a teacher gave busy work, right? Mm-hmm. We just don't give worksheets with 30 identical problems or things like that. That repetition, which is important, is always in the context of something meatier. Um, but, uh, but the better my faculty has gotten, and my faculty's gotten more experience, and I've been able to hire stronger people since our basement days, um, quite honestly, my faculty right now is just extraordinary. Um, uh, extraordinary teachers tend to be a little more demanding you know? so there isn't really a weak link in the faculty and because there isn't a weak link in the faculty oh, there's, there's more homework and more than I'd like you know? um, and one of the truths is as a small school part of our applicant pool are people who are anxious right? if you have an anxiety ridden child big schools are rough so you say wow that's a teeny place and I always say that small schools are unintentionally therapeutic Right? We are not a therapeutic school, my faculty does not have training, you know? but you want to get to know kids really well, make yourself a 70 person school and you will know the kids really well and they will come to you, right? because we're not a punitive place, we don't have detention and stuff like that. Kids will come and they'll tell you all sorts of stuff about themselves, about their friends who need help. Right? You just learn stuff I never knew when I was in a bigger school when the teachers were seen as the enemy um, or the administration didn't tell you what was going on Um, so uh, you're really in their lives you know parents will call me over the summer and say Josh I just want you to know know, Abby's grandma died we thought you should know as I think well that's really sweet that they thought I should know in in July right No, but they figure if it's important to their kid it's important to us some of them get that right and they're right it is um uh so anyway i think the homework load is hard for kids who get anxious and then think they're not gonna get it done and then just perseverate you know get nothing done and we have to work really hard with some of those um the junior year is rough like trying to do this (coughs) on top of your normal stuff but i don't mind junior year being rough like i think that is your badge of i'm ready for college kind of Mm -hmm. year um we're actually in process we have had a rough year with our ninth grade class just a lot of kind of uncharacteristic levels of anxiety just like a, it just sort of all came to <laughs> a critical mass in one grade and we're pulling back on some work and i made the faculty promise to give no homework over february break just so the kids could actually decompress every teacher can justify why their little bit of homework is is reasonable well if you don't keep language going they atrophy mm-hmm. it's a week if they really atrophy that quickly then we're not doing the rest of it yeah. well you know and, 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 well, we're just assigning reading in the humanities department. It's not work. They should be reading anyway. What if they pick their own book? You know, It's like, what if they had some control of that? And, and everyone could justify it. And I was not winning the battle. And I won't, I won't force, I mean, except for the homework portal, there's really in Model UN. I have not forced anything on this faculty. I respect them. They're going to make decisions with me, and I get a vote just like they do. They finally came around this time and said, we're not making this a general rule. Um, but this February, we're not giving the ninth and 10th grade any homework. We're just going to let them be, be. Was there a, Was there
2: a vote about whether to call you guys uh, Mr. Abrams or Josh? Uh,
1: no, that's how the school started. Um, any teacher here who wants to be a <coughs> last name is certainly free to be, although it would be weird. Um, uh, I, when I was first teaching, I think it was my second year of teaching, I was still in Manhattan. And I was walking down Broadway one day, and some kid saw me from behind and screamed out, Mr. Abrams. And I had the most unsettling feeling of literally being picked up, like it was a strange out-of-body moment in my brain, and brought back to work. And I decided I didn't like being two different people. I wanted to just be myself. And I also found that there were kids, I had a horrible first-year algebra class that tormented me when I was my first year of teaching. It was like, I'd break out into a cold sweat, seven kids, and like, I would die. I would give you any amount of money to not to walk into that room every day. They were eating me alive. Um, and one of them would go, Mr. Abrams! You know, so I realized that you could say Josh really respectfully and Mr. Abrams really disrespectfully and it wasn't it wasn't what you said, but how you said it. Right? And you look how hard kids work in schools to come up with nicknames that are okay. Coach, right? You you can call the teacher coach in class because they're your coach. Any Mr. A, right? Anyway, because naming is ownership right? And if they can, it's not ownership in a bad way, right? It's ownership and connection. If kids can rename you, there's something there. So if you just use your first name in the first place, I, I prefer it again. I'm Josh. And Josh doesn't mean that kids, I mean, I had a kid once tell me the parents were scared of me. I got to tell you, I'm really not a scary head of school, um, unless it's really super necessary with crazy parents. Um, but if they're a little scared, you know, you work it, you use it. Um, but you can be scary as Josh, too, when I
3: mean, you need to be.
1: Um, we had that debate before, when we when well, um, was. <coughs> his
3: It was August of...
1: <coughs> so let me quickly talk about assessment. We should also just walk around. Please, yeah. thank you. And, okay. So um, you've heard a lot about it already, right? Um, so one of the things I said was we do revision. So the kids also will chastise me if I don't give a rubric. Like They now think you just can't learn without a rubric. Um, one of the things I work hard on is to get them to start developing their own rubrics, and I'll do that with sixth graders sometimes. I'll do that with seniors sometimes. If you've done enough of a certain thing, then have them to st- come up with the standards for the project. Why? Because that's what we do every day. You go into the classroom and you're thinking, what will what will good work look like to me, out of me, from my students? Ultimately, I judge a teacher by what their kids do. You know, and if they have some magical weird way of doing it, more power to you. Um, but I do a, a paper on an application of robotics in my 6th and 7th graders. And we've made robots, we've studied robots, we've read about robots, and then they're going to pick a particular robot, like a robot that helps with surgery or a robot that moves boxes in a warehouse. Just like It has to be a, a, a thing, not a whole field. There are 6th and 7th graders. And then it's a completely online research project. There's no library component because the stuff in the library is out of date already right so it's a good thing to just so they learn how to do one kind of citation they learn how to do one kind of uh, source kind of uh, reading Um, and I say to them so you know you're all going to read each other's papers when the first draft is done you'll read it before I do what would you like to read in each other's papers what will make this an interesting paper for you please spend five minutes writing that down so they each spend five minutes writing down a list of things they think should be cool information paper then we fill the whiteboard with the superset of all that stuff. I say, cool, I'll type this list up for you tonight. The next day they get the list of what's supposed to be in a paper. Not one kid says, Josh, it's a page and a half long. You know, Not one kid says, Josh, our paper's supposed to address all of this because it's not my fault, it's their fault. Kids will hang themselves with a crazy hard task if you just let them, just give them that chance. And they won't complain, because they did it to themselves. It wasn't a weird teacher request. It was a reasonable expectation of each other for what makes. So then they'll have that rubric. And they'll say, oh, yes, you did discuss the origins of this idea. You did discuss how robots are going to affect our future employment options You know, relevant to your robot. Um, no, you didn't quite get your paragraph structure down. And kids can write crazy good teacherly feedback. Again, just like they know how to do headcounts, they know how to say, you know, you make a strong point here, but you don't really provide the right evidence, to, you know, I, I mean, you just think they're channeling you, it's so crazy, crazy, it's like so creepy, um, so anyway, they'll do that, and they'll, and that's, again, talk talking about an exemplar, they're just setting the bar high for themselves, um, but they're also learning that that's what learners and grown-ups do, they figure out ahead of time what good work looks like, right? If you don't do that, then you're just kind of waffling in the wind, right? It's doesn't. So give them that practice. Let them write the rubric. Don't give them those stupid grids that say, good work looks like this, mediocre work looks like this. Oh, that's just so tedious and repetitive. It's just talk about what good work looks like. Why do we have to talk about what crappy work looks like? We're not shooting for crappy work. You know, give them an exemplar. It's my, my one-column rubric. My rubric is... Mine is the list of the things the kid or I said, and then I say, yup, nope, partly. And there's a one line. And then you write, yup, nope, partly. And if it's partly or nope, you say what's missing and why. You know, if it's yup, you say what's good about it. Um, uh, and and so, so, that, so developing their own self-assessment is crucial because we are not going to be with them for their entire life. right? And if they're constantly looking at us for as the experts, which God knows I hope we are pretty good at being, um, then there's a problem. Right? Revision, revision, revision. You know, the things I hated in high school, word processing has changed, right? I mean I, I don't love the amount of screen time kids have, but it has changed what learning is like for the better in many regards, right? Uh, if you gave me back a ten page history paper in high school and said, Josh, here's what the next draft, I was mortified. I hated that. First of all, just the physical act of handwriting a ten page paper was not one I personally enjoyed at all. Um, and I, if you had asked me when I was a teenager, would you ever like to write a book? My answer would have been, no, I would never like to write a book. I have written the equivalent of a book on teaching pure math now. I, have written, I would love more time to write about teaching applied math. I, there's nothing more I'd like to do if it were something I had a year to sit down and do than to write a book. Why? Because word processing allows me to rethink and revise without the pain, right? Um, and so our kids do that they will do three and four and five drafts why? because there's a real audience for their work exhibition so evening comes and my <coughs> god your parents are, I mean I've seen parents sometimes not very gently say look at Max's work look at your work <laughs> it's cruel, <laughs> It's like that's not the point but, but sometimes that's okay like, like we had Poetry Out Loud yesterday which is an all school recitation of a poem a kid picks And the first time we did it, like, half the kids had to call for a line. They hadn't memorized their poem. Those half did not like what it felt like to be up there in public screwing Mm -hmm. up their poem. Yesterday, 70 kids recited poems. Two kids called for a line. That's impressive. I mean, I couldn't tell you which was... I mean, it was just beautiful work. Uh,
0: That expectation. Yeah. That's Um, a high expectation. uh, Yeah, we have... And you keep talking about that high expectation. And even with the rubrics and everything else, it's just about... Having that super high expectation.
1: But making it um, uh, inward, Relevant right? Just, too. Uh, yeah. but, but they own it. They yes. have to own it.
0: It can't be
1: us. You know, yeah. They've got to have their own superego doing yeah. that thing and wanting to do good work because it feels good. I, I talk about we're a college prep school. What does it mean to be a college prep school? It does not mean to check off that list of courses, yeah. right? It's, that's important. I like content. Um, to me, and, and, so, so when I went to college, in my mind anyway, getting drunk meant having three or four beers, mm-hmm. right? But um, uh, we market to our children. We, we, we consume our children in, in our world. And so now we make sweet drinks, and we make it look like sexiness and all these things. And, and now they drink 10 drinks or 12 drinks. A few years ago, one of my colleagues who went to Stanford was telling me about a classmate. He mentioned in some other context that the guy would come to class drunk. And I looked at him, I said, You mean you're still hungover? He said, No, no, Judge, he was drunk. I said, For class? Like, I'm too much of a goody two shoes, and I'm not a goody two shoes. But like, I was like, What the hell's the point? Like, what do you, and he said, You know, and then you read about people who are passed out and being hospitalized. No one I know was ever hospitalized in college because of drinking. You have to be near death. Like you have to be behaving suicidally, right? And so I started asking everyone I knew for the next year, did, how many drinks What's the most you ever drank? And did you ever know anyone in college who went to the hospital or came to class drunk? Everyone over 35 said no and looked at me like I was crazy. Everyone under 35 said yes and looked at me like I was naive and stupid. Um, It was like a sea change in people's experiences, right? So what does college prep look like? Why do people get drunk? Some of them get drunk because they're at highly competitive schools, and they've had to work like dogs to get there. And their youth has been sucked from them, and they feel entitled to finally catch up, which is stupid. right? Um, UF, if you want to go to Yale, you know, I had a student say this once to me because I went to Yale. She said, Mr. Abrams, you don't understand. Uh, you have to take eight or 10 AP classes to go to Yale now. And I had taken two and I was at a reunion thereafter and I asked around and no one had had two. Like I was high man with two AP courses. If you had told me I had to take four, I'd have been hard pressed to figure out which ones I could pull off. like, Because I was on baseball team and I was in theater and I like to run around and play wiffle ball with my friends and party and, and I like to do my work sometimes. Uh, but like, I'm like every other adult I know who went to what are now competitive colleges. So I never would have gotten into that college now. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't think the kids there are smarter. I actually think I'm a smart guy. And I think I did good work in college. Um, uh, but I also think I'm balanced. And I don't, I don't think they are now. I think they're all type A crazy people. Um, and so they want, and, and I read, and there was a Yale article in my alumni magazine a few years ago about partying and partying on campus, you know, trying to cast an eye on what's going on. And they quoted this girl as saying, at Yale, we believe in being the best at everything we do. Including
0: party.
1: Exactly. Including party. I felt sick to my stomach. I felt like a gut punch. I yeah. felt, and I tell you, if I had a daughter, and if that were my daughter, I'd be in the car, and I'd be, and I'm not like a really rigid parent, I'd be hauling her ass home and say, we're not going back to school for a while until we've done a whole lot of talking. Because right now you're not safe, dear. Yeah. Right? That's and just so, so right.
0: that, that comes back to your view. Just the so, what does it mean crap. to prepare?
1: So, why? People want quick thrills, right? They want video games, which can be fun. They want parties, which can be fun. But they don't know what's gratifying about hard work for its own sake done collaboratively with other human beings. And almost everything worth doing in our world today is complicated, is collaborative, and is utterly frustrating on a regular basis, right? A lot of my students and a lot of people I know are shaking their head right now because they can't believe how backwards our country is heading, right? And what they're all understanding is that history is not some inexorable progress, right? If the things you value, you care about, you're gonna fight for them for the rest of your life and you're gonna slide backwards half the time, hopefully forwards occasionally, although I'm pretty scared about that. Um, and, and, and So what's the value? It's the doing. It's the doing with others. It's the making a difference for some people in their lives at some point, right? Our kids know that. They have worked on long projects with other people and discovered that what is gratifying was crazy frustrating too. Jerps, every kid is so proud that they finished their junior research project, right? Mm -hmm. Every kid is terrified of it going in worn down by it in the middle but the pride when they present these projects to the community and they think holy crap i am capable of anything right and they go to college and what are the what do i hear from our kids that go to college oh i'm volunteering in a public school oh i've started an environmental group Um, they're all involved in in the work of of living right and 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 they're picking schools like i'm super pleased my son has chosen he just got into brandeis And Brandeis is like the antithesis of a party school. Like, I've asked the kids there, you you gotta go off campus. It's like, no one's doing it in the dorms. It's like, and my son likes to drink, I know, because there are nights when he goes out and doesn't ask to borrow the car. Um, And my wife and I always look at each other and go, oh yeah. Uh, (laughs) Not borrowing the car, bad sign. Um, But I also know he knows how to work hard and be responsible and I know there are things he cares about that would never make him want to risk his life mm-hmm. you know so that's college prep it's high school crazy. has to get you to that point where you know that the hard grunt work is really gratifying and fun in a way that nothing else can be. and, and, it, it, and it
0: matters now it doesn't matter you don't have to wait for it to matter later. Right. right it's a great place to end this thank you so much yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate your time yeah. you want a tour you got time for a yep. tour absolutely okay.